Take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to Romans chapter 6. The kids at this time are, are just uh, missed to uh, Children's Church. We're going to be in Romans uh, chapter 6 this morning, uh, verses uh, 15 uh, through 18. Listen then to the Word of God. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard teaching uh, uh, to which we were committed. And having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. Let's uh, pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we thank you for this day. And we just want to give you praise and honor and ask that you would uh, be with us right now in a special way as we uh, pay attention to your word and listen. Uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the things that you have uh, put in your word for us. And we do ask that you would send the Holy Spirit uh, that he would transform us, uh, convict us of sin where we need to be convicted, encourage us and strengthen us where we need to be uh, encouraged and strengthened. Lord, we ask that you would meet uh, each one of us where we are through the power of the Holy Spirit and take us uh, where we need to be and grow us where we need to grow. And we just uh, ask that you would give me the words to say that it would be clear, Lord, and we ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had a job that you did not like. Uh, think perhaps an example of a boss uh, that you did not like. And so you go out and you go job hunting. And hopefully you find a new job and you find a new boss. And, and how did you feel when you were able to finally tell that old boss, I quit, and you were able to show up the next day at the new boss's place how excited were you to be working for the new company, to be working for uh, the new boss? Hopefully the new boss ended up being a good one. Uh, perhaps you applied to the company because you had heard uh, good things about the workplace. But the point is, in those kinds of life changes, there can be a joy. There can be an excitement. Yes, there can be some nervousness, but particularly when you know you're getting out of a bad situation... And you know you are going into a much more desirable situation. We are thankful and we rejoice in that. And we hopefully praise God in those things. We're in a passage of scripture that we are to praise God because of the transformation that he's done in us. Because he has moved us from that old slave master to sin, that old boss into having a new master and a new obedience, that of righteousness. So our main point this morning is praise God that you are able to obey now from the heart. As a Christian, even though we will still have the presence of sin in our lives, we are actually equipped and empowered to obey God in ways that we could not before we were saved. And if there's one thing that we need to understand about the gospel, is it is that the same gospel that saves us also transforms us. 
The same gospel that has saved you and liberated you and you are justified in because you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and he has worked in your heart and you are completely forgiven is also the same good news, the same message that continues to transform you as a believer. Uh, In a sense, the working of God in your life as a whole is not a once and done event. Now, there certainly is in justification a once and done. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are declared righteous and that never changes. It doesn't grow because it doesn't need to grow. You have all the sufficiency you need to stand before God and to be righteous through the righteousness of Christ. However, There's the process of growing in our spiritual walk, which we call sanctification. And that is just as much a working of the gospel. Uh, Justification and sanctification are are two different things, but they they work together. They are are tied together in the working of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in effect, you cannot have one without the other. The gospel that saves is also the gospel that. That transforms. And I hope this morning that you and I are able to really praise God that not only did he begin a work in you, but that he continues that work in you. And any desire that you have now to walk in the ways of God is not something that you have done or you have come up with, but something that God has worked in you. It is a genuine desire that you have, right? But it's something that God has put there through the Holy Spirit. And, and we need to be worshipful in that respect. That he's taken us from that old boss and put us under a new master. And praise God for that. So first this morning, praise God that you can obey and that you do not, as a believer, go on disobeying. So we have in our passage, if you look down at verse 15, we have this kind of question again. And it's very similar to the question in verse one, this idea of shall we go on sinning? And so Paul says, what then are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace by no means go back to verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? It's a variation of the same question. The answer in both cases in in 6.2 and then in 6.15 is exactly the same. By no means. And, And you really have to translate this emphatically here. Absolutely not. No way. Uh, don't even think that. Uh, the King James translates it, God forbid. Uh, maybe not the best literal translation, but it certainly conveys the idea of no. Kind of, kind of the thing that you would, you know, if you were walking in uh, on, on your children and they were about to touch a, a hot burner on the stove, you would, you would just scream, no. And this is what, this is what Paul is doing. No, don't. Think that way. Don't act that way. Do not use that reasoning at all. This question comes on the heels of verse 14, where he says this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. 
So the Christian is not under the law to the same extent that in the Old Testament one was under the law. We are not bound by the Old Covenant, but we have come to experience the fulfillment in the New Covenant. Uh, If you want to put your finger here in Romans and flip over to Galatians chapter 3, we don't have time to go through all of Paul's understanding of everything related to the law, but I just want to highlight something for you. Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. And Paul is, is unfolding his kind of understanding of how God has worked in history. And so you have the promise given to Abraham. And you have Abraham being saved by, by faith alone in Genesis 15. Then in Exodus, you have the law being given. And Paul says this, Galatians 3.21, Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Meaning, is the law against what God had done in giving the promise of faith to Abraham? And Paul says, no. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, which is kind of Paul's way of saying before Jesus came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian in order that we might be justified by faith. So, in the Old Testament, everyone was saved by faith. But, but what was the role of the law? The law was kind of like a teacher, kind of like a guardian. Uh, he uses the language here of imprison and even the language of guardian. It, it's not just a, a legal guardian, but it has the sense of a, a someone who guards uh, the children or the inheritance. But in that culture, sometimes they were cruel and they were, they were tough and they were rough taskmasters. And so the idea is the law didn't bring life, but it spelled out how you live what the guidelines were. And as Paul will say in Romans, when God gave the law, it actually stirred up sin in people's hearts. It made them want to sin more. And so Paul says the purpose of the law was to serve the coming of Christ. And so while, as we'll show in a little bit, the law is written on our hearts as a believer, we're not under the law in the same sense that the Old Testament believer was under the law. For example, we, we obviously, why does it always come up on a fellowship meal? I end up talking about food laws. Uh, we have a fellowship meal today and we are not under the Old Testament food laws because we do not have all of the, the binding of the Old Covenant uh, on top of us or uh, guiding us. Now, we still have the moral things that God works in our hearts through the Spirit, but, but it is this sense of we are not under the law in terms of that being our master. And so what Paul is saying in Romans 6, if you want to flip back there, is is someone might come along and say, well, Paul, if we don't have the rules, if we don't have the laws, if we're not under the law, doesn't that mean we can go on sinning? And Paul says, no, no, absolutely not. 
Now, of course, Paul has said elsewhere that um, the purpose of the law is to instruct us. He also tells us that it is the doers of the law who are justified, meaning the only way to pass the bar under the law is to keep the law perfectly. And no one does that. And so the law primarily points out sin. It does not give us life. In fact, it's to point us to Jesus Christ so that we might find that life is found uh, in him alone. So Romans 3.19, now whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. At the end of the day, the law leaves you guilty because you cannot keep it. And in that sense, because the curse of the law, because the punishment of the Old Testament law, death has been paid for by the death of Jesus Christ, we aren't under the law and we aren't under the condemnation anymore. And so again, someone might say, well, if I have no rules, that means I can live how I want. Paul says, no, no, absolutely not. Grace brings with it obligations. When God has worked in your heart to save you by grace, he will continue to work in you to transform you by grace. And don't just think, well, now that I'm saved, I can go out there and live however I want. That whole idea of just, look, I've said the words that I believe in Jesus and now I am free and I can walk out and I can just live however I want. Sure, it's good to live for God, but you know, I don't want to do that yet. But don't worry, I have grace. Paul says, no, absolutely not. Don't say I'm not under the law. I'm under grace so I can go on sinning. Look at verse 16. And the idea here is that who you obey is who your master is. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one who you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So you are slaves to what you obey. Who or what you obey is what your master is. We were talking this morning in Sunday school about sheep and how sheep uh, will respond to the voice of the shepherd. And it's very not only true to life in what Jesus says, but it's very true to life with sheep. And when the shepherd calls them, and Jason was sharing about a grandfather or somebody, that they can go out and call in the sheep, and the sheep will not respond. But when the grandfather goes out, he'll call them and they will come in. It's because they know their master. I don't know if you've ever seen those things on, sometimes you see them in TV shows and stuff, where, where they line up two people, right? And they have one person has the pet, right? And they want to figure out who's, who owns this pet. And so they bring the, the little, let's just say it's a little dog in, because this probably would not work with cats, because cats have a mind of their own. And they bring the dog in, and, and the, the two people call the dog. And they say, come here, Scruffy. Come on, come here. And what does the dog do? The dog goes to its master. The dog obeys its master. And so who the dog obeys 
who the sheep obeys is evidence of who the master is, is evidence of who the shepherd is. And the same is true in this passage. If you are presenting yourself regularly to sin, what is that saying? Who is your master? If you are going out and saying, you can say, well, hey, I believe in Jesus. But if your life is saying otherwise, Paul says how you live is an indicator of who your master really is. If you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey. So you remember back in verse 13, he says, do not present your members, the idea of your body and the things that you have, as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself as those who have, to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as instruments of righteousness. It's this idea of how are you living? Are you going out and, and in effect presenting yourself to sin, saying, I want to do this, I'm going to engage in this, I like this? Or are you presenting yourself to God, saying, I belong to you, I want to obey you, I want to walk with you and in you and in this newness of life. And Paul has said, you in Jesus were brought from being dead in your sins to being alive to God because you're united to Christ. Now, act like that. Give yourself to God. Obey God. Now what Paul is saying is the one to whom you present yourself, either option here, is the one to whom you really are enslaved. Now, Paul's not talking about a Christian who stumbles once or twice with sin. Paul's not talking about someone who, who has stumbled in sin and feels conviction and is returning right away to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's not even talking about someone who's in a, in a fight against sin. Paul's talking about someone who is completely yielding themselves to it. They are presenting themselves to these things. It doesn't, in effect, bother them when they fall into sin. They're just continuing to hand themselves over. And Paul says, what you're obeying is what you're a slave to. What you're listening to. What you're responding to. Who's bossing you around, in effect, is what you're enslaved to. And there are two options in this passage. Notice how he uses the word obey here. First, he uses the word obey in a general sense. If you present yourself as an obedient slave, you are slaves to what you obey. And that can be either for good or for bad, for righteousness or unrighteousness. But then he kind of changes the way that he uses the word obey. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, Uh, slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either to sin. So that's the one thing we can submit ourselves to obedience to, or he says, which leads to death, which I think we should take that there as what are the wages of sin? Death, condemnation. If you have a life characterized by sin, what is the eternal punishment that awaits you? Death separation from God. Then he says also, or obedience. So there are two things you can obey here. You can obey sin or you can obey obedience. Well, what does he mean, obey obedience? He means obeying God, 
obeying the things that we know that we should be doing, the, the pattern of sound teaching. And it's interesting that he does talk about it in terms of obedience, but he doesn't talk about it in terms of law because we're not under the law. And yet we still have to obey God. We still have to obey the good commands of God. We still have, for example, the Ten Commandments that we're responsible for, the things that we call the moral law. Murder is still wrong, and so not murdering people is obeying God. But it's more expansive than that. We obey God in every facet of life. You think of the fruit of the Spirit. That is fruit that the Holy Spirit cultivates, but that is obeying God. And that's according to the pattern of sound teaching. And so you cannot say, I'm not under the law, but grace, so I have no reason to obey. You can't say, since I'm saved by grace, obedience doesn't matter or obedience doesn't serve a real purpose. Certainly, obedience doesn't earn your salvation, but obedience is a response to the salvation that we have. God has moved you from life to death. And if you are not obeying, we need to back up a step and ask ourselves, who really is our master? Who are we enslaved to? Am I enslaved to sin or am I enslaved to God because the Lord Jesus Christ has bought me with his blood? And so Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do, not real, or do you not realize this about yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Paul says, examine yourself. Examine to see if Christ Jesus is in you. What will it look like if Christ Jesus is in you? Well, one, you'll have made a profession of faith. You will have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will have received him for salvation. But two, because you have a relationship with Jesus, you are to be conformed to the image of Christ. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect in this life. But examine yourselves. Have you seen some changes? Do you have new desires as a Christian that weren't there before? Desires to serve God? Are you battling against sin? Are there things where you can look back and say, He really has changed me in this? Paul says, examine yourself. And even he gives the warning, unless indeed you fail the test. I think that's a real warning. Like, don't blow this off, Paul is saying. And, and I think, you know, not that we should be scared. And, and if you are a genuine believer, don't, don't let this uh, keep you up at night. Continue to trust in Christ. But at the same time, there can be that kind of personality that says, well, how dare Paul ask me to test myself? And Paul's saying, well, what, what are you afraid of? Do you think maybe you aren't saved? You see, the believer doesn't, the genuine believer doesn't have a problem saying, is Christ in me? Well, I know him. I believe he died on the cross. 
I've seen what he's done in my life. I understand the forgiveness. But I've also seen him change some of my habits. You see, it's the person who's living and yielding themselves to sin. And they hear about a test and they say, whoa, wait, no. It's kind of like when you study for a math test, right? Uh, if you study for it, you, you, you may not be looking forward to it, but you say, okay, I think I got this. But it's the person that shows up the morning of the test and, and has not studied. And what do they say? Test? How dare you give me a test? Well, you didn't tell us ahead of time. You didn't remind us. And maybe the professor says, well, it's in the syllabus. But yeah, you didn't tell us what to study. And wh- why are they nervous about the test? Because they think they might fail it. The same is true, I think, of the Christian and the Christian life. I think one of the applications of this passage is how we think of the Christian life. And there are two categories of people in the Christian, in, not the Christian life, in life in general. There are those who have sin as their master and those who have God as their master. And sometimes what you see is people will draw this out in a, in a little diagram and they divide the Christian life up into two categories. Those who have God or Jesus as their master and those who have Jesus as their savior, but not their master. And that's kind of the one there on the left with the, the cross isn't on the throne. Now, certainly we all stumble and struggle with sin. But the point is here, either you are in sin and you are slave to it and you are obeying it or... God in Jesus is your master and he has transferred you from life to death. If you are completely fine with saying Jesus isn't my master yet and you're completely comfortable with living in sin, you may not be an actual believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one occasion in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul says that the believers there are infants. And he calls them fleshly. But it's a rebuke. It's to say, don't live like this. Not to say, well, this is a category of being a Christian. It's to say, that's not who you are or who you should be. Now stop living like that. The reality is either God is your master or sin is your master. Either you are a believer and you are set free in Christ. And then the exhortation is don't let sin be in charge because it's not. Or you are an unbeliever and you are still in slavery to sin. And if you find yourself in this category of, well, I think I believe in Jesus. But I really like yielding to sin. You need to ask yourself. Do you understand the transforming power of the gospel? Have you really believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe you do not understand salvation. Maybe, on the other hand, maybe you are a genuine believer and the Lord is bringing conviction to you to say, this isn't who you are. Stop living like this. So sometimes we do find ourselves in in, in a battle with sin, and we do find ourselves uh, giving into it or succumbing to temptation. And you have to go back and remind yourself, what has God done for me in the gospel? He has made Jesus my Lord. He has put me under a new mastership. I need to start living 
like this. I think two weeks ago I used the analogy, if you quit your old job, you wouldn't keep going back and showing up for work every week, punching in. It's the same idea. You have a new boss. Start clocking in for him, as it were. Start living in obedience to him. If you are obeying sin, if it's our, uh, it's our master, if it's your master, it will lead to death. But if God is your master, the outcome is righteousness in your life. A Christian cannot and will not ultimately be comfortable with offering themselves up to regular, habitual, unrepentant sin. And I tried to choose my words very carefully there. A Christian cannot and will not ultimately be comfortable with offering themselves up to regular, habitual, unrepentant sin. The same gospel that saves you is the same gospel that transforms you. Second, this morning, praise God that you can obey Him, although you were once enslaved to sin. I mean, this is, this is just awesome. Uh, this is amazing. That God has worked in you. Those of us who were dead in our sins could not respond to Him in our own strength. And God has worked in us in such a way that we can actually now respond to Him. We can actually obey. We're not going to be perfect in this life. But because He moved us from life, or excuse me, from death to life, we are much, much, much better off. So Paul gives thanks to God. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Just Paul, Paul just breaks out here in worship. Praise God. You could translate this uh, grace be to God. Thanks be to God. God is Awesome. Look at what he has done. In other words, whenever you are obeying God and walking in his ways, who gets the credit? Is it me? I mean, on the one hand, yes, I am doing something. But who gets the credit? God gets the credit. Why? Because God has moved you from being enslaved to sin to being able to obey from the heart. His focus on the obedient Christian life does not take glory away from God. It gives glory to God. It does not minimize the grace of God in the slightest. It enhances the grace of God. God's grace doesn't just forgive you and wipe the slate clean. God's grace forgives you, wipes the slate clean, and gives you the power of the Holy Spirit to walk and follow God. The Christian has become obedient from the heart. Again, verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin, and, and you, when you are a slave to sin, you're, you're under its mastership. You had, in a sense, no choice but to obey the sin because that's who you were you were a sinner and you delighted in doing that 
But you could not just say, well, I'm done with sin because you were enslaved to it. And God had to free you. And he freed you in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has caused you and given you ability. He says you have become obedient from the heart. It brings then obedience. Uh, when I was uh, a youth pastor, uh, and by th- this obedience is actually from the heart. It's not just about keeping outward rules. And this is where I was going to go with the, the illustration. When I was a youth pastor, uh, we had some actually, you know, you have to have some rules sometimes for your youth group. And, and we had a rule uh, that girls were not allowed to wear two-piece swimsuits. So, so no bikinis, which, you know, makes sense. We want everybody to dress modest and all that. Um, the, pro- the trouble was then they invented this thing called the tank kini, which is a tank top, and it comes all the way down. It's like wearing a normal shirt. It looks decent. It looks modest. But our rule said, do not wear two-piece swimsuits. So technically, this was a two-piece swimsuit. Uh, most of the ones that the girls were shopping for uh, were, were modest ones, we assume. But so we had this, like, dilemma. Well, what do we do with the rule? How do we change the rule? Well, how are we going to know if the tankini is short enough? What are we going to do with the tall girls? And maybe it doesn't quite come. You know, and, and we went on and on about this. We, we almost kept, got to the point where we were, like, writing pharisaical law. Like, you know, two pieces are okay if, you know, it meets these ten conditions and and, and so we finally went to the pastor and we're like, you know, what do we, what do, we do with this? How, we have this no bikini, no two-piece rule, and now they've invented this thing called uh, the tankini. And even sometimes the, the shorts on these things, the bottoms, were even more modest there and, than some of the one-pieces. And now, by the way, now I totally understand because I have teenage girls, and, I, you know, and I'm sure some of you have been in those struggles as well. It's hard to pick clothes. Uh, how do you do it? And, and the pastor said, why don't you just get rid of the rule? And we were like, what? Can we do that? Don't, don't we want people to be modest? And the point was, teach the teens to obey from the heart. And you won't have to worry about, well, is this a two-piece? Is this an allowable two-piece? Is this a not an allowable two-piece? I mean, honestly, like, technically, if they came in, in soccer shorts and, a, and a, a modest T-shirt, that's two pieces. So uh, under the rule, that's ruled out. But that could be very modest and obeying God from the heart. I don't want to be inappropriate in the way that I dress. Modesty is important. But the idea is you have to obey from the heart. And so this idea of we are not under the law, but under grace doesn't mean, well, we don't have a bunch of rules now so we can do whatever we want. We have, in a sense, a higher calling. It is very easy to be a rule keeper. And some of us are very good at that. We like write out our lists. And, and the Pharisees were excellent at that. You know, they had the case law. When is it work? Well, if you untie your donkey with one hand, it's not work. If you tie him up and untie him with two hands, uh, then it's work. Uh, you know, and all of these things. And it, it gets ridiculous. If you, one of them was, you know, you could travel, I think, uh, I think it was like a mile on the Sabbath and it wasn't considered work. Uh, you could travel a mile from your home. If you travel more than a mile, it was work. 
But if the day before you went to a place, if you left your coat there and then came back, then you could travel a mile to where you left your coat. And because you left your coat there overnight, it was considered your house. So you could travel another mile again from that place and you could go two miles, but you didn't break the rule. Do you see how absurd it gets? Do you see why it's important to obey from the heart? This is the promise of the new covenant. I will write my laws within their heart. I will take out a heart of stone, a heart hardened to the things of God, a heart that delights in following sin, and I will give them a heart of flesh. I think Paul has a subtle illusion here to say, you're obeying from the heart. You have the Spirit in you. It's not that you're disobeying God. It's not that you're breaking the laws. It's just that you're not enslaved to the letter of the law. You have the law in your heart. And if you have the law in your heart, you should want to obey God. You should delight that He is your Master. And so Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would to Christ. Not by the way of eye service as a people pleaser, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That, I think, is a perfect illustration of what it means to obey God from the heart. Do you just show up at work, or in this case, your slave master, and, well, I have to obey you because God said it. You know, I have to clock into work on time because. You know, pastor gave us this sermon this Sunday about obeying our bosses. Or do you delight in doing it? Are you, are you a people pleaser? You know, you, you just, you know, you're playing to your boss's good side. We call it brown nosing, right? You're, you're kissing up to the boss. But you don't really have that desire to please the boss. The idea here is please the boss. Please the slave master. Because you want to please God. And you want to please God from the heart. You truly delight in doing the things of God because you know that God delights in those things. We need to be so thankful. So thankful that we have the new covenant. That we have uh, the Spirit. Now, again, and, and we don't have time, I keep saying we don't have time to flesh this all out, but certainly in the Old Testament, people were saved by faith. But you know, you look at the history of Israel and how many times did they have the law and they walked away from God? And God promises the remedy to that. I will put the law in their hearts. This is something that the prophets just... They longed for this. They were desperate and desirous of seeing this happen and, and knowing the age. And even remember, you, you remember Simeon in the temple. He just had promised that he would live until Jesus came and he saw the Messiah. And just remember how overjoyed he was. There were hundreds, if not thousands of believers in the Old Testament that I'm sure had that same longing and died hundreds of years before, thousands of years before the Messiah came. How thankful should we be that God now has fulfilled these promises and this matters for your Christian life. God really has done something in you. 
Not only has he saved you, not only has he completely forgiven you, which means you have no guilt whatsoever, he's changed your heart. You are in Christ a new creation. Praise God for that. Thank God for that. Sometime, if you have some time, you know, take out a piece of paper, and I would encourage you to just write a list of all the things that God has given you just in salvation that you're thankful for. And you could write a list about all the things you're thankful for, but, but just take a moment and do salvation. You think of justification. You're declared righteous. You think of adoption. You think of union with Christ. You think of sanctification. You think of this obedience. You think of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you go on and on and on and on. And look at the riches of the majesty of the grace of God. And praise Him. And praise Him. Finally, this morning, praise God that you can obey Him because you have been set free from sin. Look at verse 18. And this really just continues with the sentence. And have been, having been set free from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness. Do you see here how there's no middle ground? You were a slave to sin. You have been set free from sin. Where are you now? You are a slave to righteousness. Who was your master? Sin. Who is your master now? God, specifically God, I think, in Christ. But, but here the focus is just you have a new boss. It's one or the other. There isn't this middle category of I'm not under this boss, but I'm not quite there where, this, where, where I'm, I'm, God isn't my master yet. He says, praise God, because what did God do in salvation? He took you out of slavery. He set you free. But the irony is he puts you in a new slavery, a good kind of slavery, a slavery to righteousness, which leads to life over and over again in this passage. It's not that the believer is free from the presence of sin. We still have sin, but we are free from the enslaving power of sin. But now we have a new obligation. We have a new master. We fully acknowledge that at times we we do not live the way we should. And we do not live as if God and righteousness is our master. But that's who we are. And so the challenge over and over again in Paul is be who you are. God made this change in you. Now start living it. Be this way. Look at the Gospel. Look at what He's done. Now, this is your motivation. This is your power and your strength to obey God. Because He's your Master. And because He's made it possible to bring change, or He's brought change into your life. If you look down at chapter 6, verse 22, Paul says this, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Paul's not saying we're saved because of our good works, but he is saying sanctification, fruit in the Christian life, is the path that the Christian will walk on this life. And what's at the end of that path? 
eternal life. Why do you walk that way? Because God has made you his slave. He doesn't mean that in a demeaning way, but it does impress upon us. This is a non-negotiable obligation that we have to God because he's our king. But he's also our father. And, and what father doesn't delight when his children obey him? And what father doesn't give commands to his children because he has their good in mind? The same is true for God. I want to give you a couple applications and a couple uh, questions to think about. First, none of this that we've said takes credit away from the gospel but it enhances the gospel. God not only saves you from sin, but transforms your life. And if you don't believe that transformation into new behaviors is a part of the gospel, you're really selling God short. You're robbing him of glory. Second, the question you need to ask ourselves, or what you can say is, who or what I obey is a powerful indication of who my master is. Am I regularly giving in to sin or am I striving to walk in righteousness? So you ask yourself, who is my master? And then you ask yourself, am I walking a life that reflects that I've been brought from death to life? Or is it possible that I don't understand who Jesus is or what he's done? Do I really understand for the Christian, the believer, do I really understand the new obligations that I have in Christ? Grace does bring these obligations, not because God isn't gracious, but because it's the fruit of his grace. I think a prayer that you can pray to yourself is this, Lord, let my life and my walk reflect a person who is enslaved to righteousness. Let my life and my walk reflect a person who is enslaved to righteousness. We don't like, I don't sometimes like that terminology. Oh, I'm enslaved to something. But that's who God made you. The challenge is to to respond to that. And I think one of the dangers is that we ignore it. God has made you enslaved to righteousness because he's your master. And in salvation, he has made himself your master. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and heavenly father, Lord, uh, we just thank you for this day. And we want to delight ourselves in you. And just not only do we have liberation in our salvation, but we are now freed to walk in a new righteousness and And that righteousness is liberating. But it does have obligations that flow from this wondrous grace. Lord, may we be thankful. Rather than seeing these things as harsh and cruel and, oh, righteousness is so difficult, may we take joy that you have not only accomplished these things, but you've given us the ability now through the Holy Spirit to to actually obey from the heart. Lord, we know that we are not going to be perfect in this life, but help us to strive to walk in your ways, to strive for excellence, to strive for obedience. Lord, may we look at our own lives and not be judgmental of others, but, but take serious thought into the condition of our own heart and our own behavior in walking 
as obedient servants to you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You can stand with us.